what are the dangers of declawing your cat? We lay them out for you with cat expert Dr. Eliza Sundahl. Plus, could robot pets be the future? All that and more today on Pet Resource Radio. From the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, I'm Sierra Howe. And I'm Dave Shapiro. And yes, indeed, welcome to the program, the show, the lifestyle that is Pet Resource Radio. We're coming to you from the room we call the Fishbowl here at the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City. We're a nonprofit whose goal is to keep pets and people together through supportive services for folks who are in need. And coming up on the 29th and 30th of January is your last chance to get our January special, which is a full set of dog or cat vaccinations for just $30. We're doing a drive through clinic here at our regular location, which is 1116 East 59th Street in KC Mo. That's from 10 to 2 on Friday. And then on Saturday, another one from 9 to noon. It's a really great deal, so come on by. You don't want to pass it up. And again, it's $30 for adult pets, and we're offering $10 boosters for puppies and kittens. Yeah, bring them on by. We want to get everybody vaccinated. Yep. Yeah, why don't we do some pet news? All righty. Okay, first up, could robot pets replace real therapy dogs? Mm. A recent study at the University of Portsmouth indicates that maybe that could be the case. Now, it was a small-scale study done with real dogs and biomimetic dogs. That means robots that mimic animal behavior. Now, they looked at the effect they both had on a group of 34 children aged 11 to 12. What they found was that despite the children reporting that they preferred playing with the living dog during the play sessions, they actually spent more time interacting with the robot. So why switch over to robots instead of using real dogs? Olivia Barber, a therapy dog owner and first author of the paper on the study, said, We have to be mindful of the welfare of the therapy dog. Visits can be stressful and incredibly tiring for therapy dogs, meaning that we should be exploring whether using a robotic animal is feasible. Robot dogs have the advantage of being able to be thoroughly clean and being able to work for longer periods of time than a real dog. Um, Ah, man, I'm pretty... Not sure about this study is what I would yeah, say. Yeah, agreed. Um, if I was a kid and you put me in a room and you gave me a real dog, I'd be real happy. Um, if you gave me a robot dog, I wouldn't know what to do with it, but I would certainly be spending a lot of time with yeah, it because of the novelty. Because it's new. Yeah, it's a new thing. I personally, I think as a child, I would have obviously liked the real dog more. I grew up with pets. That was kind of my thing technology wasn't really into it which yeah. might surprise people because technology is like out the days we're living in now you yeah. literally mm-hmm. yeah but i was like hmm i yeah. don't think i would be into it but then when she mentioned the toll that it can take on the therapy dogs and how um, it can be stressful and really tiring i was like oh Yep. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense that you want some sort of relief yeah. for the, the animal itself um, so they're not just given and given and given. So I don't know. I would just have to see for myself, I think. Yeah. It is very interesting, though. Definitely. So next up, we've got a story about a kitty named Moose, which I just love cat names. Well, any pet names yeah. that people give their pets that just make me kind of giggle. Yeah. He was found five years after he sca- escaped the house of his human, Kendra, but technically, he was found before that. He was just going in and out of shelters during that time. It was only when Kendra happened to see him on the Midcoast Humane Society's adoption page that she realized, first of all, that he was okay, and second, that he was still really close by. 
And so like anyone else would be, she was completely shocked. She quote, it felt like a dream at first, she said. Now she and Moose are reunited in short order and they're closer than ever. She quotes again, Moose knows he's finally home and he does not want me to leave his sight, which I don't blame him at all because I feel the same way. I'm so grateful to have him home with me. Cute. I know. Super cute, super adorable. And I don't want to be a buzzkill though, but um, putting a microchip in that cat would have saved a lot of yeah, trouble. for sure. Because five years is a lot of time. I mean, you know, pets live s- such a, a shorter time than us. Um, losing mm. five years of that time would be heartbreaking. It's my biggest nightmare. Like this story, I needed to hear it because it's a happy ending, obviously. Right, right. But like there are some times when you just, you don't ever want to have to think about something happening like that. Nope. Which and is why microchipping exactly. is so important. Super I, important. I will tell somebody every day, all day, mm-hmm. microchip your pet. Why is it important? Well, because uh, if your pet were to get lost or stolen, if they ended up at a shelter, if they ended up at a veterinarian's office, um, the first thing that they're going to do is scan that pet for a chip. And if that chip is registered to you, which you have to do yourself, um, if that's registered to you, then your contact info is there and you can be reunited. Super easy. Which, and imagine if she, if he did have a microchip, Five yeah. years ago, she her cat would have only been missing for a like day. Maybe a day or two. And yeah. if luckily he didn't get adopted out to another family and she saw his picture, but she would probably be still thinking that something very bad had happened to him and that yep. it, was, it was like giving up hope, like he was never going to come back. So but yeah. happy for Kendra, happy for Moose, yep. and microchip your pets, people. Yep. All <laughs> right. Let's go talk to Dr. Sundahl. We get contacted on a regular basis by folks who are interested in declawing their cat. That's not something that we do here, and increasingly veterinarians are choosing not to declaw cats because of the ever-growing body of evidence that it causes far more problems than it solves. But many folks don't fully understand what a declaw surgery is and the lasting impact it can have on the life of a cat. We've got a past president of the American Association of Feline Practitioners, board certified in feline medicine with the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners, and one of my favorite cat experts, Dr. Eliza Sundahl, on the show today to talk to us about it. Thanks so much for being on Pet Resource Radio, Dr. Sundahl. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is a subject I I think we need to get out there and talk about. Excellent. So Um, So first off, why do people declaw their cats? The most common reason is that they want to protect their their household items, like they want to protect their furniture, they want to protect carpets and rugs and things like that. Um, and they see it as the, the way that that's done, because mainly people haven't in the past really talked about what your options are and and talked about what kinds of alternatives that can be used to try to, to minimize damage in the household. Right. The second most common reason that people will, will come wanting to do it is that they want to decrease the, the um, chance of risk in the household to a family member, like, like a child or a, or a baby or, um, you know, a, a frail adult. But those are the main functional reasons why people will, will want to get their animals, their cats declawed. Okay. Well, now that's interesting when we talk about the surgery itself. Now, what exactly happens during a declaw? Because people seem to think it's like a nail trim, but it's much, much more, isn't it? It really is. Um, On the front limb, which is the most common, um, there are three bones, and 
the just like in your finger, you've got these three bones that are sort of cylinder shaped, mm-hmm. and the first two bones are cylinders that are kind of stacked on top of each other in the cap. But the third bone, instead of being like a cylinder like it is on us, it's kind of crescent-shaped. And so the the bones of the, 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 the cylinder part are sitting into a little pocket on what's called the third phalanx. But the, the phalanx is each individual bone. And so it sits in a little in this little cup that's made by a curve in that last bone in the foot. And that, that little bone rocks and absorbs the concussion of the gait. And as the cat moves, there's some, there's some movement in it, just like there's a lot of movement in the bones of your foot. Right. And on that bone, there's very, very, very tightly adhered to it. The skin tissue that has been modified to make the nail, like with, with our fingernails and you can't dissect it away. It's all kind of like, like all adhered all together. It's all like one entity. So the surgery has to remove the bone along with that modified skin tissue that makes the nail. The, there are two ways that have been used historically on how to do that. One is to dissect away and take out the entire third phalanx, the entire bone. The other way is to remove almost all of it, leaving this little tiny very end of it to which a um, a tendon attaches. And so the upshot of all this is that when you declaw a cat, you are removing a functionally an anatomically functional part of the foot that is designed to absorb concussion of the gait that is absorbed that 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 rocks and moves as that animal moves and so in addition to having trouble with any any other kind of amputation that might occur like you know phantom pain or or chronic inflammation or 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 bone injury, you also have this change of function because you've taken away this thing that is is a necessary part of how the cat moves. One of the main reasons that people want to declaw a cat is because of the inappropriate scratching behavior like we were talking about, but scratching serves important functions for cats. Now, what, what are some of the reasons that cats do scratch? So they, they communicate um, with with not only the, the, the visual sign of what they've done to the actual material that they've scratched on, but there's a whole bunch of little glands that are in the feet and, and um, that have chemicals in them that communicate information about, hey, this, this, this is something that I am familiar with and I'm comfortable with, and this is my area, and this is my, you know, I, I can say this is my territory. They, they leave this kind of chemical calling card to the rest of the environment so that when they pass by it again, they're like, oh, yeah, man, that's cool. This is mine. I feel comfortable. This is, this is my area. But also it signals to other cats that this is, this, this is something that is another animal's turf or, or another animal's presence. So it does provide a real, it's a real important thing for them to do. 
Now, we talked about it a little bit, but what does studies show about the long-term impact of declawing on a cat's well-being? One study that was published in nineteen in uh, excuse me two thousand seventeen had a hundred and thirty seven cats that were declawed and one hundred and thirty seven cats that were not declawed, and they looked at several they several behaviors that that um, they looked back in the medical histories to look to see the incidence of of certain behaviors or or um, problems that that might have been revealed in the medical record and they found that there was a um, there was a great deal more elimination problem like urinating and defecating outside the litter box with cats that were declawed mm-hmm. they found that aggression and biting was greater in cats that were declawed mm-hmm. they found there was more back pain in cats that was that were declawed they found there's a um when cats have got like a uh uh, an owie or an itch or a chronic pain sensation in a location, they'll do um, they'll do a lot of grooming, and that's called over grooming or barbering. And they found that that was increased in cats that were declawed. And and when they looked at the incidence of like how much more there was, urinating outside and defecating outside the litter pan was increased by like seven times. Wow. Biting overall was increased by almost five percent or almost five times. The kind of surgery that leaves in that little tail end piece of of the third phalanx mm-hmm. that I talked about before. Yeah. It turned when they looked at the hundred and thirty seven of those Z-quad cats, sixty-three percent of them had that bone still in there. And when you only looked at the problems that were developed in those cats, mm-hmm. The incidence of biting and aggression was like nine times more likely wow. than cats that were not declawed. So the upshot of it is, is we've we've got this very nice, well-planned study that gives us some good statistical information about yes, there's there's definitely consequences um, to declawing, and we need to put that into context. For like, why are we trying to declaw the cat in the first place? Especially if you're trying, if you, if your objective of, of pursuing that procedure is to protect people in the household. Right now, and speaking of that, <clears throat> we talked about it a little bit, but wanting to protect people in the household, people that are elderly or immunocompromised, um, getting their cats declawed, we don't suggest declawing under any circumstances. But is that a, le- a legitimate concern? So I. I think I feel like there are are better ways to handle the situation by educating people on how they manage and how they handle their cat. Mm-hmm. I I think this study very clearly shows that there's an increased risk of other worse aggressive behaviors than an accidental scratch. Right. Um the when you look at the trouble that you're going to get in from having a cat bite wound versus having a, a cat scratch, it's the bite wound is like a gazillion times worse than just having a scratch. And so you, um, when cats are doing or displaying any of these aggressive behaviors, you know, just like any animal, when you're, when you feel 
threatened or cornered or fearful or, you know, like you just don't have any other options to cope, to, to be able to, 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 to be okay about what's going on around you. Sometimes you're going to lash out. One, one mechanism is to say, gosh, I've used up all my other coping skills. I, I, I now have to try to do something to defend myself and they, they will do something that's going to be aggressive. So when they scratch, you know, most cats are not going to scratch in an, as a warning unless somebody's doing something or there's some sort of circumstance that's going on right. that that is pushing them to do that. And so educating people about what pushes cats' buttons, what is going to make a cat feel uncomfortable and threatened, what are the places that you should and shouldn't be messing with a cat? education. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. That's, and I'm glad that you brought that up because that's definitely something that we stress here is just is education. And I, I wish we could do a lot more, you know, when it comes to well, dogs and cats, but cats specifically, because there does seem to be a lot of misinformation when it comes about cats. Um, people treat them like they're small dogs or they, you know, um, and that doesn't always really work. So, um, you know, it doesn't work at all, and and they are really totally different species, and they they come to us from totally different places yeah. on what they were relative to how our society came about. Well, let's talk about then the scratching behaviors. Now, how do we redirect or help deal with scratching behavior without declawing? Say it's a young adult. Say it's a two or three year old cat that you've had for for two or three years, and you want to start to change that behavior. The process I'm working with that cat's going to be a little bit different than the process of working with a kitten that you're that that is a new kitten that you're bringing into the household. But as far as the as the adult cat goes, because I think that's probably the most common right. thing is that people are like, oh, gee, my cat is two years old now. What do I do? Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing is to recognize, A, that this is a natural behavior and it's something that, that um, the cat is going to have to do. And the cat's going to have to do it somewhere. And your job is to figure out how can I how can I redirect the cat to go to some place that's going to be appropriate that we both can live with. So um, cats will usually scratch um, in areas that are going to be kind of near where they're the most comfortable mm-hmm. and and on the perimeter of their of their territory, like you know, if they're um, uh, you know if there's a couch by a window, a lot of times the cats might might be scratching on the end of the couch that's there. Um, they tend to they when they're sleeping and they wake up, they'll do a big old stretch, and then they'll usually go and try to do some scratching behavior there. Right. So placing scratching devices, placing those in the in the areas near where the cat has has shown that it's got a preference for scratching. So, you know, by the window, by the the piece of furniture, near the piece of furniture that the cat is is working on. And then it you want to entice the cat to use that particular piece of furniture or that the scratching device. And so um it's it's great to be able to try to entice the cat over to the area to explore the new device the new scratching area with with catnip or toys um there is a product that that you know I mentioned that there are are um, chemical communicators and they're called pheromones and they're the pheromone the chemical that's in between the toes of the that's leaving the scent behind has been synthesized 
into, there's a product called Fetal Scratch, and it's an analog, a synthetic analog of the 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 chemical that they, they lay down. And using Fetal Scratch on a surface to try to to entice the cat to go over to that area has been shown to be very helpful too. You certainly don't have to have it. It it certainly isn't. Um, uh, it but, but it's a, but it's helpful. So so I know it can end up being a little pricey, but you certainly can do it um, with with good consistent reinforcement when when the cat is exploring and and hopefully starting to scratch at the the new device that you've put down that um, being consistent with rewarding that behavior with petting them and praising them and giving them treats and things like that, mm-hmm. that will help to reinforce that behavior. Now, during that time when you're trying to transition them over, it's certainly okay to try to cover the area that you uh, don't want them to go to. Right. And so, but what you're doing, the important thing is that you're providing an alternative location that you're making really, really, really attractive while you are um, either covering or or um, uh, trying to give them a chemical signal not to be using the, that they don't have to use, they don't have to do the place where they were going previously. Well, Dr. Sundahl, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate your expertise. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad that you're you're discussing this because it's a really important issue and, and people need to be thinking about um, uh, what their options are for, for trying to help live with their cat happily in their household. Agreed. Thanks so much, Dave. When we were talking with Dr. Sundahl, what she said about the differences between dogs and cats got us thinking about the way that cats were domesticated and what we found was pretty interesting. So the truth is that cats are really only semi-domesticated, and regardless of how much they sit at their food bowl and just awkwardly stare at you, that little lion you have in your living room has great night vision, the broadest hearing range of any carnivore, and the ability to handle a diet that's rich in protein and fat. Combined, this means that ultimately they don't need you to survive, which doesn't surprise me. (laughs) That doesn't mean they don't love you, of course. They have traveled a long way to be here, after all, over thousands of years. See, all cats come from a common genetic ancestor, the North African Southwest Asian wildcat. Unlike dogs who we domesticated way earlier and were already co-apex predatoring all over the place with, um, cats didn't really come around until we started growing our civilization in a different way. In fact, they kind of domesticated themselves. So what do we mean by that exactly? Our best estimate for the domestication of cats is about 12,000 years ago, right around the time that humans were setting up shop in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers made for excellent farming, and we moved from being hunter-gatherers to being agriculturally based. That means grains, which need to be stored somewhere, which means you're going to have mice. And that, friends, is the beginning of our long-storied relationship with cats. It was a marriage of convenience, as things often are. The cats kept coming around, killing rodents, keeping our stores of food safe, and things of that nature. But more than that, genetic evidence very strongly suggests that humans actually did a lot of the dirty work in spreading cats around the globe as port towns became natural jumping off points for kitties who just spent months hanging around a bunch of sailors protecting the grain stores on ships. 
Of course, nowadays our things are a little different. We see hundreds of cats every year domesticated, showing their bellies and meowing, which is one of the strangest things to come out of our relationship with cats. Cats don't often meow at other. Don't I said often? They don't never meow at other cats. They have lots of ways. They use to communicate with them, so they don't necessarily need to meow. Us humans, though, we need specific instruction on how to do things, so they chirp and chirrup and meow and peep at us. It's how all those cat-loving humans we work with on a daily basis know that their cat is their friend and loves them, even if they don't technically need us. And now we say goodbye to you, friends. A big, big thanks to Dr. Eliza Sundahl for joining us today to talk about declawing. As for us, we're a nonprofit organization that's keeping pets and people together through supportive services for folks in need, and you can help. Just head over to prckc.org and you can donate, volunteer, shop our wish list, or any combination of those you like. You don't have to pick just one. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcasting app, be sure to rate us and leave us a review because that always helps new people find us. We're at PRR Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. If you got any ideas for future episodes, we want to hear them. So shoot us an email at podcast at prckc.org. So until next time, tail wags and purrs to you and yours. And as the spiritual writer Eckhart Tolle said, I have lived with several Zen masters, all of them cats. Take care. Pet Resource Radio is a production of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, hosted and produced by Sierra Howe and myself, David Shapiro, written, recorded, edited, and mixed by David Shapiro. Music by Hazel Rob Musical Industries, a.k.a. me. More info at soundcloud.com slash Musical Industries. <laughs>